0: Audible for the best Bitcoin content out there. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. Welcome back to the show, guys. Sorry about the uh, slow start to our week here. I've got a uh, totally new recording set up in a new location in the house. So this should make recording later into the night and uh, still getting work done while people are here a lot easier. So hopefully this will actually uh, up my volume of stuff that I can get done. But this is The Crypto Economy with Guy Swan, and I am your host, Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And uh, if you didn't, I wanted to announce something before we jump into this one. If you didn't see the Twitter post, uh, I was invited to speak at BitBlockBoom2020, that uh, the uh, awesome, the Bitcoin maximalist conference in Dallas, Texas. So honored to be a part of that, and that's just really, really exciting, exciting and I've got so many ideas uh, as to what to talk about. I've been sharing a, a bunch of them with the uh, Crypto Economy Telegram crew. But if you want to join me, Cool news is we've got a discount code CC for crypto economy. That is definitely the way to do it that will save you 30% off of the tickets. So, if you want to hang out with me, want to hang out with a ton of Bitcoin maximalists, and go to an awesome conference, it is going to be a hell of a good time. It was so much fun last year. Uh, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, That is BitBlockBoom2020. And uh, hopefully, I'll see you guys there. All right, uh, let's go ahead and jump into our piece today. We're starting right into a read. This is another one from Parker Lewis and Unchained Capital. We are continuing with the Gradually Then Suddenly series, and this one is titled, Bitcoin is Not Too Slow. In Peter Thiel's Zero to One, he outlines the impact new technology has on building a non-zero-sum future. While the book is focused on individuals and companies, Bitcoin as a monetary system is the ultimate zero-to-one technology leap. For historical examples, Thiel highlights the advent of the steam engine, as well as the shift from typewriters to computer processors, among others. He also articulates a view that innovation has largely stagnated since the early 1970s, while noting that technological progress since then has been more 1 to N than 0 to 1. Bitcoin fixes this. Bitcoin's innovation is not only 0 to 1, it is fundamentally distinct from the class of innovation that is the focus of Thiel's book. Bitcoin is a monetary protocol built on digital scarcity the impact of which will be far broader than steam engines and computer processors. Bitcoin fixes this. There's a new meme floating around the internet. Whatever the problem, Bitcoin fixes this. Negative yielding debt? Bitcoin fixes this. Wealth inequality? Bitcoin fixes this. Endless global war? Bitcoin fixes this. Financial crises? Bitcoin fixes this rage culture, Bitcoin fixes this. We're not exactly sure how just yet, but it's an articulation of the balancing effect a sound and stable monetary system will have on every aspect of society. Money is the coordination function of society. It allows hundreds of millions of people to cooperate who otherwise would not have a basis to do so. And Bitcoin is the tool that will allow for more peaceful coordination because it is both unmanipulable and devoid of moral hazard. How it globalizes is the one-to-n problem, not in the express sense, as Thiel describes, but the solutions to scale Bitcoin will naturally be incremental. The non-zero-sum collective benefit that follows may not literally cure every ill in the world, but the invention of a step-function-change monetary network is fundamentally different than any single product because money is the economic good that coordinates all other economic activity. Quote, The problem is precisely how to extend the span of our utilization of resources "...beyond the span of the control of any one mind, and therefore how to dispense with the need of conscious control, and how to provide inducements which will make the individuals do the desirable things without anyone having to tell them what to do." F. A. Hayek, The Use of Knowledge in Society Hayek writes about the invention of money and the price mechanism as the tool that allows society to dispense with the need of, quote, conscious control. Bitcoin is the superior successor to this mechanism, and its zero-to-one innovation is digital scarcity, not payments or speed of transactions. While Bitcoin's property of scarcity still needs further stress testing, it is a profound achievement and what makes Bitcoin unique. Never before Bitcoin has any asset, let alone a digital one, been finitely scarce. The end result of its innovation is the hardest form of money that has ever existed. That is the zero-to-one achievement and a phenomenon that almost certainly will not be repeated. Every other problem that Bitcoin will have to overcome is more pedestrian relative to scarcity. Digital payments? The idea that human ingenuity can create digital scarcity, but that we then cannot layer on payments technology does not logically follow. Payments technology is just one of the many one-to-end innovations that will be built on top of Bitcoin to globalize its adoption. Not only are payments easier to solve, It is also not a critical path that needs solving today. The primary use case for Bitcoin today is as a savings mechanism, not payments. Over time, as adoption increases and as more infrastructure is built, Bitcoin will evolve into a more transactional currency. But that process will occur gradually, not suddenly. And as the shift occurs, Bitcoin adopters will continue to leverage legacy monetary systems and legacy payments rails. Not a payments rail. The Bitcoin blockchain will never be a layer for mass payments. But there is a considerable amount of debate on this topic. Many hold the view that for Bitcoin to be, quote, successful, it needs to be a one-stop shop combining the roles of currency issuer, settlement layer, and payments rail. While Bitcoin fulfills the first two functions beautifully, currency issuer and settlement layer, it is categorically not a payments rail. Both for reasons of speed and scale, Bitcoin fails the payments test. The good news? We don't need the Bitcoin network to be a payments rail. Much of the confusion in the philosophical rather than technical debate stems from the opening salvo of the Bitcoin white paper, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. Peer-to-peer has been interpreted by some to imply that Bitcoin needs to be able to handle every last transaction in the world between any two peers. Separately, others believe that if Bitcoin transactions cannot occur at the scale or speed of Visa or MasterCard, it is structurally flawed. Essentially, according to skeptics, if Bitcoin cannot meet both of these standards, it fails on its promise. Thankfully, it does not. For additional background, Bitcoin blocks are solved every 10 minutes on average. However, Bitcoin blocks are not solved precisely every 10 minutes on a fixed schedule. The next block may be solved in 1 minute or 20 minutes, 30 seconds or 36 minutes. The network adjusts such that blocks are solved on average every 10 minutes. How could a merchant or transaction processor live in a world either this slow or unpredictable? Separately, Bitcoin blocks have a limited amount of space to include transactions. While there is not a fixed transaction capacity in Bitcoin by count, each Bitcoin transaction consumes a limited amount of block space. As a function of limited capacity, blocks include approximately 2,700 transactions on average, with 10 minute average block intervals, 6 blocks per hour, 24 hours per day, 365 days per year. That equates to a network capacity of approximately 145 million transactions per year, which is the equivalent of approximately 4.6 transactions per second. Visa, on the other hand, processes 124 billion transactions per year at a rate of around 4,000 transactions per second. See here, a link included. How can Bitcoin be the purely peer-to-peer engine that powers the global financial system if it operates at nearly one one one-thousandth the scale and speed of Visa alone. The reality has always been that if Bitcoin were to have a non-zero value, the consequence would be a system so valuable that any base layer would not be able to handle all transactions without sacrificing decentralization or censorship resistance. Without these properties, Bitcoin would not be a zero-to-one innovation, and its value function would break down. Ultimately, the Bitcoin protocol layer provides the function of currency issuance and final settlement, but it is not capable of storing every small purchase, including your Starbucks, for the rest of time for everyone. If it were the latter, All transactions by all people, no matter how big or how small, would have to be validated and stored by every other person on Earth. Without a mechanism to align the interests of network participants, a tragedy of the commons problem would exist, and the end result would be a less secure currency system subject to centralization. Instead, we accept a mechanism to limit transaction throughput at the base layer, shifting aspects of Bitcoin's peer-to-peer transactional architecture to separate layers that integrate with Bitcoin. These trade-offs have been made in order to secure the foundation of Bitcoin's monetary system. Decentralization leads to censorship resistance, which makes possible the fixed supply. A snapshot of the Bitcoin white paper with highlighted a purely peer-to-peer version of electronic cash. Many point to this text from the Bitcoin white paper released by its synonymous founder as evidence that Bitcoin was always intended to fulfill every payment by every possible network peer. It does say, quote, purely peer-to-peer, after all. However, more important to Bitcoin than anything written in this summary or any interpretation is Bitcoin's consensus mechanism. Everything critical in Bitcoin is enforced by a consensus of network participants, including its fixed supply and ultimately the capacity within each Bitcoin block, which limits the number of transactions it can process. This is the fundamental difference between Bitcoin and the legacy financial system. Monetary policy by consensus rather than by fiat Bitcoin's founder created a system that ultimately removed critical decisions from any central authority, instead deferring to the wisdom of market consensus. It is a system that is flexible enough to be adapted, but rigid enough that any material change is very difficult. As a consequence, network peers have to decide on a decentralized basis how best to scale Bitcoin. It is through this consensus mechanism that Bitcoin dispenses of the need for, quote, conscious control. Everything comes with trade-offs. In Bitcoin, there are two holy grails, a fixed 21 million supply and preventing the currency from being spent multiple times, the double spend problem. The value of Bitcoin is derived from its ability to secure both of these functions on a decentralized, trustless basis, and both are inextricably linked to Bitcoin's fixed network capacity. Think of the capacity within each Bitcoin block as valuable digital real estate. All market participants seeking to clear Bitcoin transactions have to compete for block capacity. Scarcity in network capacity is the function by which Bitcoin's shared resource is optimized. Or think of it as Bitcoin's solution to the tragedy of the commons. Competition for the scarce resource ensures that the resource is used efficiently and that its value is maximized. Ultimately, scarcity causes market participants to compete with each other, bidding up the value of the network's capacity rather than shifting negative externalities onto the rest of the network. In Bitcoin's free market, the highest value and most profitable transactions are prioritized. Without scarcity and transaction capacity, this value function would break down. It is less important that we optimize for transaction capacity, and more critical that scarcity exists. No one really knows the optimal amount of transactional capacity at any point in time, partly because demand is ever-changing, but also because it is generally growing over time. The critical piece is that capacity is known and scarce, which allows market participants to plan and ultimately to compete. The commons is never depleted. Instead, participants compete and innovate to figure out how best to utilize a scarce asset. Scarcity ensures that the commons is not abused and creates a predictable rate of growth in the overall size of Bitcoin's blockchain, which ultimately protects and promotes decentralization. As discussed in a prior edition, miners secure the Bitcoin network by devoting real-world energy resources to run cryptographic hashing functions and to solve Bitcoin blocks. By solving blocks, miners validate history and clear current transactions which are then checked Invalidated validated by the rest of the network. In return, miners are paid in Bitcoin. Devote resources to secure the network and get paid in the network's native currency, Bitcoin. The actual compensation paid to miners comes in two forms, newly issued Bitcoin and transaction fees. In order to devote resources today to secure the network, miners have to reliably expect that aggregate compensation will hold its value into the future. Approximately every four years, the newly issued Bitcoin paid to miners gets cut in half. The Bitcoin halvening. Today, with each block, 12.5 new Bitcoin are issued. In approximately eight months, when the next halvening event occurs, see here, that amount will be reduced to 6.25 new Bitcoin per block. Approximately four years after that, 3.125 new Bitcoin per block will be issued. This process will continue until we reach the smallest unit of Bitcoin, 1 100 millionth. And thereafter, no new Bitcoin will be issued. This is the issuance function that governs Bitcoin's fixed supply, 21 million. And as a derivative function, it also shifts compensation to secure the network from mostly new Bitcoin today to ultimately a system relying completely on transaction fees. But how does this relate to Visa and transaction capacity? If it were not for the scarcity of capacity in each Bitcoin block, there would not be a mechanism to create a transaction fee market. Scarcity in block space creates competition between market participants to clear transactions, which causes them to bid up the value of real estate and to use it efficiently. Without a fee market... The only mechanism to pay miners to secure the network would be to alter Bitcoin's fixed monetary policy and increase supply. But recall that scarcity in Bitcoin's fixed supply, 21 million, is the basis of its store of value property, which is where the rubber meets the road. By creating scarcity in network capacity, we also ensure the integrity of Bitcoin's fixed supply, which makes the whole value cycle function. Working within this reality, scarcity is a far more important property than either the speed or ultimate capacity of transaction throughput. Fixed network capacity leads to the limited transaction capacity, which leads to the fee market, which ensures the fixed supply of Bitcoin. And because the real problem Bitcoin is intending to solve is that of money and global QE, not payments, those that store wealth in Bitcoin would much rather secure the money supply than sacrifice its long-term integrity and credibility for transaction throughput. In short, The future of Bitcoin is far more secure in a world where all market participants can depend on it having a reliably fixed and scarce supply while accepting lower transaction throughput or speed as trade-offs. What good is high transaction throughput and faster speeds if the fundamental value of the underlying currency is at risk? the existing financial system has already made the opposite trade-off for us. High transaction throughput and fast transactions by way of centralization, but with the cost of an architecture susceptible to systemic monetary debasement. Bitcoin represents the alternative, and we are not about to make the same mistake twice. Bitcoin does not equal Visa. Ultimately, Bitcoin is not competing with Visa for supremacy in global payments. Instead, Bitcoin is competing with the dollar, euro, yen, and gold as money, and any comparison to Visa, its transaction volume or transaction speed, is fundamentally flawed. Bitcoin fulfills the role of currency issuer and final settlement. As a result, The proper comparison would be between Bitcoin and the Fed as currency issuer and as a clearing mechanism. No one makes the mistake of confusing the functions of Visa for that of the New York Fed, but for some reason, the comparison is often made between Visa and Bitcoin. While it would require time and investment, Visa's payment network could sit on top of the Bitcoin network to fulfill payments much the same way it sits on top of the existing banking system. Rather than clearing the currency through a central bank, final settlement of transactions would clear through the Bitcoin network. In the existing architecture, the payments layer, Visa, and the settlement layer, banking network and central banks, are separate and distinct. The principal problem Bitcoin intends to solve has little to do with the former, but instead with the mechanism by which currency is issued and cleared. Think the Fed and QE. Visa helps move dollars, but Visa is not the dollar. It is a technology company that provides a service. It has 17,000 employees. Bitcoin has none. Whether credit or debit, Visa is an inherently trust-based credit system. While consumers generally associate swiping a Visa card or the equivalent at a point-of-sale terminal as payment, It really is not. Instead, balances are checked, transactions are authorized, and settlement occurs later. Dollars are not actually cleared through a central bank or settled at the point of sale every time a transaction is processed. Individual transactions are also never really cleared. Instead, transactions are batched together, netted, and settled at a later point in time. Only then are accounts credited with proper balances. So when someone attempts to equate a visa transaction with final settlement, that is just not the way the world works. But that is the comparison that is implicitly being made when someone attempts to compare visa with Bitcoin. Bitcoin versus the Federal Reserve When compared against its real competition, the Fed, the ECB, BOJ, etc., Bitcoin begins to look like a Ferrari. Final global settlement approximately every 10 minutes, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year on a permissionless basis. Compare this to the existing permissioned financial system, which is subject to multiple layers of bank and central bank intermediaries and is only open during, quote, business hours. This is the great misnomer that exists within Bitcoin. Those that believe Bitcoin to be too slow or lacking in network capacity are comparing Bitcoin to the wrong application. We could set up a network of banks on top of the Bitcoin network and the payment system would function as it does today. The pushback on this point is the risk of centralization. If Bitcoin were to just sit in centralized banks, it would increase the possibility that the Bitcoin network could be co-opted and undermined by a network of banks and central banks, whether to force changes to network consensus rules or to censor end users. Ultimately, this was gold's failure as a monetary medium. It was susceptible to centralization, which then spawned fiat currencies, which have turned out to be easily manipulable. While this is unlikely and hopefully not how Bitcoin scales, money and payments technology are distinct problems. The fundamental reason being that there are two sides to every value transfer. One side almost always involving money and the other as the fulfillment of goods and services. Payments layers help provide a bridge. Because of the nature of trade, The two sides of a value transfer generally and naturally occur by different processes and at different points in time. Think about the settlement of currency on one side and the transfer of title to a home or car on the other, or payment for a good on Amazon and the fulfillment of that good two days later. Two different processes occurring at two different times, and it is important to recognize that Bitcoin has no knowledge of the outside world, whether identities or the second leg of a value transfer. All Bitcoin knows how to do is issue and validate currency, whether a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin. This is really the function and limitation of any base currency system. Payments layers provide a bridge between currency settlement, the Fed or Bitcoin, and the fulfillment of goods and services. Gold solved mass payments via bank centralization, the dollar, the Fed, and large payments processors such as Visa. Bitcoin likely solves payments through a technologically superior mechanism, but we have time to solve what is a separate and distinct problem from that of money. Scaling Bitcoin is one to N. If we solve the problem of money through digital scarcity first, 0 to 1, the technology advancements to scale transactions and ultimately solve payments are 1 to n. It is not credible to think that human ingenuity can solve the former, but then fail on the incremental derivatives. It is not just a matter of hope and faith. Instead, it is one of reason and logic, considering both the advancements in scaling solutions that are already being pursued and the challenges relative to the problem Bitcoin has already solved. Permissionless innovation and the economic incentives inherent in Bitcoin will coordinate and accelerate solutions to any number of future challenges. Market participants have an incentive to increase the value of the network and to innovate to scale the network. But the solutions will have to work within the network's consensus or garner sufficient consensus to change the rules. Because of the nature of Bitcoin's economic incentives, it is far more likely that scaling solutions work within existing consensus rules. One such example of an advancement to scale Bitcoin within the network's consensus is the Lightning Network. The Lightning Network builds on top of Bitcoin as a trust-minimized layer to scale transaction capacity, which still remains fundamentally distinct from payments fulfillment. However, if successful, Lightning will be used to create Bitcoin payment channels that enable far greater transaction throughput at far lower cost, the scale and speed of which would rival Visa. While it may not be the ultimate solution, it is an example of the innovation that Bitcoin is fostering. Lightning is also only one of many solutions that are actively being developed, and competition will drive us toward the best scaling solutions, of which there may be a combination of many. The approach to scaling Bitcoin is a slow and conservative process. Bitcoin is too important to follow the Silicon Valley mantra of move fast and break things. Instead, it's move slowly and don't break anything. If a global financial system is to be built on a decentralized monetary system, the foundation must be protected at all cost. Ensure the security of the base monetary layer, Bitcoin, first, and then allow network participants to innovate on top of it in a permissionless manner. Remember that Bitcoin is only 10 years old. We are in the very inception of Bitcoin's monetization event, and infrastructure is still being built to allow for the proliferation of this new technology. It's a little ridiculous to contemplate the problem Bitcoin has already solved and then immediately pivot to a, quote, but why not mass payments today? Line of thinking especially when considering that Bitcoin in its clearing function is already faster and more reliable than comparable mechanisms for final settlement of dollars, euros, yen, or gold. Then, when understanding that the fundamental use case for Bitcoin today is as a long-term savings mechanism, not to fulfill payments, it becomes more clear that not only is the problem misdiagnosed, but also that the desired solutions can wait. We will need the ability to fulfill payments in the future, but we have time before we get there. In due time, we're going to have our cake and eat it too. All right. That was the awesome addition to the Gradually Then Suddenly series by Parker Lewis. Bitcoin is not too slow. Let's go ahead and hit our sponsor, and I want to break down a lot of really fascinating uh Segments and uh, points that he goes over in this piece. All right, again, uh, just to remind everybody, this is another of Parker Lewis's series. Um, I think he's on part ten of this series now, and this is just uh, the fifth um, installment of it. But this was ca- called uh, titled "Bitcoin is not too slow," and it was on the Unchained Capital blog where all of these are posted. I highly recommend if you got some time to sit down and read. So th- this whole series is amazing. Um, uh, highly, highly recommended. Uh, I love that uh, he starts off. Uh, he's actually got a quote um early on talking about how uh, the the idea of the market and the price system is to create a mechanism to create a system of organization that doesn't require conscious thought, and it's specifically because. Um, the ability to utilize all of the information, all of the data in society is not possible except through a collective mechanism by allowing essentially the boots on the ground closest to the problems and the data and the people that they're working with um, uh, to make the final decisions about their value and their involvement in it. And then collectively when everyone has basically independent command over their own resources and their own lives and their own uh, uh, associations and uh, cooperation with people in their lives, well, then you extend that out and you have a essentially a market result that is able to accumulate or account for an, a literally impossible amount of information. And that's from the use of knowledge in society from F.A. Hayek. And it's a great analogy or or basically concept to bring up to to how Bitcoin basically leverages this by creating a monetary base and allowing permissionless innovation to a much simpler problem, the problem of creating payments. And uh, uh, if you haven't heard that one, I personally love that section. It's a little bit deep in the weeds for economics, Um, but uh, I have... I think it's two episodes that we dig into the use of knowledge in society and I talk about it a lot um, and try to break it down so it's a little bit easier language um, to uh, make sense of. But that's such, a, such an amazing piece and it's such a critical idea that's a counterintuitive um, in a lot of different ways and it's also so nuanced that it's so easy to forget. That's actually one that I will refresh myself on uh, from time to time uh, of my own show just because I always want to keep that perspective of how important it is and how much information is actually being accounted for by giving people the freedom to command their own resources. When you have a central party, like some board of like self-aggrandizing arrogant economists thinking that they're just going to account for everything by watching prices – you're already negating or manipulating prices, excuse me. You're already negating all of the information and all of the knowledge, the millions of people, the billions of relationships and lives and the amount of time that it took each one of these people to you know, do this, the number of resources that they found, the alternatives that they had in their situation through billions, hundreds of billions of transactions that led to the market price. And they think they're just going to manipulate the result of that. And that it's then going to have uh, some sort of effect on all the information that led us there. It's it's actually pretty similar. Like a decent analogy, I think, is thinking that we can solve the uh, the consequences of a disease or something, and that that means the disease has gone away. Like like let's say I've got tuberculosis or something, and you know I'm coughing a lot. Well, as long as I take some uh, Nyquil to stop the coughing, well then we're good. The tuber- the Tuberculosis isn't there anymore. No, you've just hidden the fact that my body is telling me something is terribly, terribly wrong. um, And that's what the price is. It is a consequence. It's a side effect of what's actually happening. And to think that you can manipulate the money, the prices, all of these things. This is what creates these awful imbalances that Bitcoin is here to solve. That's why we need a tool as powerful and decentralized and unique as Bitcoin. And that's why this concept that he uses that I'm going to steal the crap out of, I mean, it's it's something that's out there, but I like the zero to one and then one to N. Um, I've heard the zero to one thing Alex Vetsky talks about it there. I mean, so many people in the Bitcoin space try to get that idea across. And it's so important because Bitcoin was a single invention. It's a... It created digital scarcity for the first time ever, and it created a decentralized monetary base. And anything that we want to do with that, anything we want to use, to, to uh, that we want to be able to leverage that monetary security and that that independence, that that ability to um, coordinate actions and agreements with people to cooperate with others without all of the trust necessary. Um, without the risk of manipulation and corruption that our current legacy system uh, puts us at, like all that risk, well, th- all of those are one to end. All of those are not... They're they are tiny, tiny problems in comparison to the problem that just got solved with Bitcoin. As another quote that he has uh, t- towards the beginning that he he reiterates a number of times through this piece, and I uh, he should have repeated it twice as often, was that, uh, where's the quote I got in here? Every other problem that Bitcoin will have to overcome is more pred- pedestrian relative to scarcity. Digital payments? The idea that human ingenuity can create digital scarcity, but that we then cannot layer on a payments technology does not logically follow. And that's, that's it's it's funny, I've always kind of thought of it as some faith or hope, which he kind of alludes to later on, is that, well, the market can solve that problem. But that felt like a cop-out to me when when I would think for myself that, like, okay, like, I know payments technology is going to get solved, um, and I don't have to have a clear explanation right now for why that is going to happen. I think Lightning Network is an amazing tool that goes so far in setting up a new network that can make this problem basically inconsequential, but it doesn't scale a thousand X right now. It just doesn't like uh, with uh, my current experience, it's somewhere between a 10 to 20 X for payments just with myself. And if that's like common across the network, well then, you know, it's a 10 to 20 X increase in payments where you would have to atomic swap or splice or uh, do an on-chain transaction one out of every 10 or 20 times, which is a massive improvement. And at this stage, the fact that we can get that level of additional scaling in payments already and the incremental improvements will create exponential uh, progress in that, that only getting like 5% more effective results in a massive result for how to allocate these things. And there's so many different technologies around it. It's just not a big... Issue, but I did tend to think of it or or um, set the frame of reference in my own mind that I kind of just had faith that it was going to get sorted out because the market's really good at sorting stuff like that out. But putting it in this perspective um, uh, demonstrates exactly how logical it actually is that it's actually got nothing to do with faith. It's about basic rationality in the degree of problems that are being solved and. That that's just a such a beautiful way to put it, is that digital payments are easy as shit. Like they're just not that hard. We can get we've solved that a hundred different ways, many, many times in the past. Um there isn't one solution to it. We can have thousands of solutions if we need to. Um, we can have a varying degree, a huge range of the degree of trust in these payments that we um that we allow for you know consumer payments versus big payments versus um uh, you know like uh censorship resistant payments and all of these other decentralized networks on top of it, we can have a whole range of all of this stuff. We can make the shitty proof of stake trade-off on a layer on top of Bitcoin, but if we do it on the new network, we have no foundation to settle to if something goes wrong, which is why this is such a zero to one Invention. This is, this, is a, this is a discovery because we only have one really good solution to the trust problem, to the decentralized monetary system problem, but we have an unlimited number of solutions to the payments problem. First, we could just put our entire current system on top of it and we've got something that's vastly better than what we've already got. But we already have a decentralized, permissionless base to start from in which anyone can innovate on. So we're limited to none of the problems or um, uh, restrictions or permissions or uh, regulations, anything that's needed on the legacy system. All of that vanishes when we're building on top of Bitcoin. It is literally like saying, well, the Internet, why do we need the Internet? We already got radio. We already got uh, uh, pictures and a uh, photo albums. We already got TV. We already got uh, uh, mail. We've already got uh, uh, telegraph. Uh, we got all these technologies already. Why do we need a permissionless uh, layer to basically do it all on one thing? That seems silly, right? Well, no. It's because we can now innovate in any way whatsoever. All of those systems were permissioned. All of the you can't you can't just broadcast radio. You can't just create a voicemail for AT&T as a person in my home like you you have to go work for AT&T and update their entire infrastructure it's about creating a market for permissionless innovation and with that a global ecosystem of millions hundreds of millions of people that have a stake in making this thing valuable and using it for as much as they want to minimize their trusted uh, relationships with other people to secure Their own sovereignty and their own money, having that incentive system in place on a permissionless, programmable monetary base, there's nothing that can compare. Payments are so not important in that concept. Like it's just, it's gonna get solved because it's not nearly as difficult as the problem Bitcoin is solving right now. As Parker Lewis says, it is not a payments layer. It's a monetary system. It is a issuing and settlement system. There's another great quote that he's got a little bit further down, um, that this is the fundamental difference between Bitcoin and the legacy financial system. Monetary policy by consensus rather than by fiat. That is the breakthrough revolutionary innovation. And anything that compromises that mechanism of consensus – that uh, that mechanism of defending that monetary policy in exchange for something as trivial as payments is absolutely absurd. Particularly when trying to think of the payment system or the payments problem as a base layer thing is just hilariously dumb. Uh, like the the base layer is never going to handle. All of these, like everybody compares it to Visa. Visa is not the only payments network in the in the world. There are many different credit card and debit card companies. There are payments technologies. There's PayPal. There's Venmo. There's all of these things. There's Visa is a drop in the bucket of the payments problem. And the idea of trying to, I actually wrote about this, uh, pretty extensively in what was it, like seven misconceptions of the Bitcoin scaling problem, I think. Really old article, one of the early uh, episodes of the show. I'll try to remember to link to it so uh, uh, you guys can go back and listen to that one if you would like. Um, But I I talk about uh, comparing like Visa payments and stuff. Like we're talking about a a, a system that is going to allow for streaming money um, as uh, Andreas Antonopoulos puts it. And that we're going to have Hundreds, if not thousands, of different scaling options at our disposal. Uh, we'll probably see a couple of dominant ones, just like you see, you know, you know, a couple of dominant protocols built on top of the internet. Um, and that's just because integration will be simpler, and there will be something that scales a lot better than the others, or at least has the highest trust minimization in the scaling of that. I think it's going to be Lightning Network because Lightning Network is unbelievably. And just an awesome tool, particularly with some of the, some of the recent developments like Turbo Channels that are going to be uh, a hitting with uh, services like Olympus, um, uh, Jack Mallers, um, we read uh, his announcement of that on the show, and that's such a fascinating concept with Breeze Wallet. There's so many great technologies, and the development is happening so fast, It's it's hard to keep up with. But again, there's going to be... There's going to be a plethora of these, and Lightning Network does not have to be the end-all, be-all. Um, in fact, because of um, how extraordinary the Lightning contract is, uh, it could just as well be something that ends up um, basically providing liquidity for capital markets. Like it, act- it can actually be more of its own like secondary settlement layer on top of Bitcoin. Uh, that uh, allows for massive transactions between large businesses and enterprises. Like we could actually see, I personally think we'll see very, very well-funded lightning channels um, uh, become a part of creating a business agreement with someone. That when Apple is going to buy all of their glass from Corning for uh, their iPhones and stuff, well, then they they part as part of their agreement. They say, well, we're going to have a, a channel with. You know, hundred ninety million dollars worth of value in it, worth of Bitcoin in it, for this set period of time while our contract is still live. Um, and then we can do with what we will, like from then on out. Um, I, I don't think I don't think that's a not even a stretch, and B, what an amazing position for Apple and Corning to be in to hold a contract where after they, uh, after they make an exchange for something like that. That they can still settle between themselves, maybe even with a third party, put a third signature in there of their law firm or you know some some intermediary that's going to uh, help settle any dispute um, between the the second part of that. Like he talks about this, uh, Parker talks about this a lot in the article, which is great. Is that payments is a two step uh, thing uh, that that happens in two completely different stages. First, there's money. Then there's the deliverable of the good or the service, and that's why I think Lightning Network's insurance and collateral uh, like contract, essentially smart contract, could be so powerful in providing a, uh, a source for something like that, that, um, that they basically have some sort of a time lock unless there was a third person who basically says, okay, I have proven or I have validated for myself that the good or the service in question has been delivered. And therefore, now nobody has to wait a month or whatever to settle this to the Bitcoin chain, whereas before there would be some sort of a time lock. Um and this these are this is something that can easily be done right now with the Lightning network. It's just that the infrastructure is not there. Ah, uh, uh, managing the keys could be a real pain in the ass. um the The static backup function is not quite there. amps There's a lot of different reasons why it would just be a huge headache right now. But there are mild incremental improvements over the period of a couple of years that could basically solve all of these issues, and theoretically they're already solved. It's really just a process of implementation at this point. But going back to my original point with t- talking about like streaming money and stuff, um, the analogy that I used in the uh, misconceptions about the Bitcoin scaling problem was that to think that we're going to use Visa as our metric for how many payments we have to worry about on the Bitcoin network— is analogous to taking the number of faxes uh, that were done in the 80s, or maybe the number of uh, uh, like actual handwritten letters to each other, um, in order to predict how many emails we're going to send, or in order to predict uh, how many times we're going to have a conversation with other people in 20 years on the internet. Is that that's the ultimate scaling goal? If faxes and snail mail were our metric for how much we had to scale the internet, it would have been hilariously off mark. I have so many conversations with so many people. I have like 40 Telegram chats open at all times, and I'm talking with many different groups. I'm on social media. I send emails multiple every single day. I get a I get a bunch of emails, and that's with a bunch of filters to immediately cut out anything that says subscribe or unsubscribe in it um and move and mark all of this stuff as read i get like 20 important emails every day after all of my filters i i kill my fax allocation in before i'm awake in the morning and that's why in the article i say that trying to use visa as your metric and thinking of payments in the same way that we've always thought of them as strictly like going to a consumer like like going to Starbucks and buying a coffee. If we think of it like that, it's it's just as ridiculous as thinking in the reverse in the snail mail and um, fax machines for uh, or faxes for what we're, what the volume of information and, and communication will be on the internet. It's just painfully ignorant and short-sighted. Uh, and what we actually need to realize is that Visa is not a drop in the – like Visa alone is not a drop in the bucket of the scaling problem. It is a drop in the ocean. We are going to be talking about millions of payments a second. We are going to be talking about entire networks that that make Visa look laughably ridiculous because we have we have payments going every single time – that we update packets when we're watching a video. We're going to have streaming payments as a possibility in this new realm, and I don't think I don't think comparing to Visa. I think not only is trying to accomplish Visa on the base layer a absurd proposition, but thinking that Visa is the benchmark we have to worry about is is equally absurd. It equally misses the mark of what the actual end game here is. And it's something that uh, he kind of, he brings up not quite the same way that um, I usually talk about it uh, in some of the past pieces that we've gone into, um, but that uh, basic, basically, he says the real problem that Bitcoin solves is that of money and global QE, uh, that we have a independent decentralized monetary issuance and ownership settlement trustless ownership settlement in that. like ownership settlement that is entirely independent of any other system, institution, uh, uh, authority, po- politics, anything. Ownership that is independent to this, the Bitcoin system itself. Um, and that is the power. That is the unbelievable value. And it is only because through the consensus rules, Bitcoin creates an artificial environment and an environment that is isolated to everything else in the digital space where certain types of data are treated with an explicit set of rules and without those rules, without verifying, without creating a barrier for information that invalidates those rules, that cheats those rules in running full nodes, without creating a network that is ensuring that only, only the data within that artificial environment is explicitly within those rules, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. It's all arbitrary. If we are not enforcing the artificial environment, which is explicitly and only a derivative of the consensus rules, then we've not got anything there. We've got no assurances. We've got no integrity of the ledger. And transaction throughput isn't worth shit. I love that he was like, we've already done that. We already did that. The current ex- financial system already makes that opposite trade-off. No integrity, highly trusted, massive amount of payments. We already did that. We don't need another one of those. He's got another great line um, in here just about, which is funny because I don't really think to bring this up when I'm talking on this, this point typically, um, but it's so true, uh, is that it doesn't matter whether you're using debit or credit or like whatever, Visa is just a credit system. Like it, it's not, there's no settlement in that. Like, like we think of payments, like Bitcoin is a final settlement that every 10 minutes, every time there's a block, there's hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of settlement on top of that. You don't have any of that with Visa. You don't you don't get settlement at all until way later, sometimes multiple days, because of how it clears. Um, particularly if you're having to go like across borders or something like that, where uh, at five o'clock you know um Visa settles to the bank, and then five o'clock the next day the bank settles. Um, and if you're going overseas, well then they have to settle with an intermediary like international bank, and then. That settles with the, the local bank in the other country. And each one of those takes like a full business day to actually settle. So that's why, like, overseas payments um, or, or sending money overseas can sometimes take three or four days, is because that's typically the number of institutions that it's having to move through because they only settle towards the end of their day. Um, and uh, even that settlement is not settled, it's still reversible. And uh, like like finalize, it's all still authority based. So so much of that can still be undone or manipulated just by the politics or the authority involved in saying okay, there was a transaction or there wasn't. Um, obviously, it is not even remotely permissionless. And thinking that Bitcoin should do the degree of settlement that it has for every single payment. Ever is to basically say that the innovation that it has in settlement, in creating a trust, a trustless, independent monetary base with no Federal Reserve, with no central bank, um, where consensus is establishes the rules and where the underlying monetary system cannot be changed. It is literally almost, it is incredibly difficult to change, and where settlement is cumulative where the the amount of barrier that force field of proof of work around your transaction um is it gets stronger and stronger the longer you hold bitcoin bitcoin is a time value it is a time dependent amount of value in uh, assurances of your ownership like when you if if i made payments with my bitcoin every single 10 minutes well then i only ever have a you know one blocks worth of assurances that I'm the final owner of that Bitcoin, that that my change address is in fact controlled by me. But if if I hold it for a year, well then I have an entire year's worth of blocks proving that I am the owner. You aren't utilizing Bitcoin if you only hold it for 10 seconds. You're utilizing none of the powerful feature and the unbelievably revolutionary aspect a utility of the system, which is that the longer you have it, the more you are absolutely certain it's yours. That is the utility of Bitcoin. To think that we're supposed to do payments every single second, um, and that's the utility of Bitcoin? No, that's the utility of some sort of payments network that we'll have on top of Bitcoin. But the ownership of Bitcoin, that force field around anyone's ability anywhere in the world to edit your ownership That is the value of Bitcoin. You are only utilizing Bitcoin if you are holding for an extended period of time. That's how you utilize its highest value proposition. That's why he calls it payments. I mean, a a savings technology, which is the only way out of our huge mess. We need savings technology. Pierre Richard talks about that that all the time. If you're not following Parker Lewis and uh, Pierre Richard, now that I brought them up, um, uh, you're really missing out. So go do that. And uh, there's another great line. There's another great line before we finish this thing out. Um, Is that, uh, quote, it is important to recognize that Bitcoin has no knowledge of the outside world, whether identities or the second leg of a value transfer. All Bitcoin knows how to do is issue and validate currency. In other words, decide whether a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin. I thought that was a really really great way to put it. The thing that Bitcoin does is validate, is confirm beyond any doubt that one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. That's what it does. The fact that it does transactions at the same time on the base layer is just is simply a function of that process. And as Parker Lewis said, The ability to aggregate payments, the ability to create payments technology with this independent monetary base, to create a financial system on top of it, is a one-to-in invention or innovation. It is something that we can have thousands, millions of incremental improvements to as the time comes that we need it. And simply put, we don't need it yet. That is not the major problem of society. That is not where the hundreds of trillions of dollars of imbalances lie that need to be solved. That problem is in the central bank system. That problem is in the underlying financial markets, in derivatives, in the fractional in the global fractional reserve system. That is where the bulk, that is where our huge problems, ...and imbalances and wealth inequality and corruption and manipulation come from. And that is the problem Bitcoin is solving. That is a hundred trillion dollar problem. Payments are peanuts in comparison to that problem. That is why it makes no sense to think you can solve the former, but not the latter. It's like saying you can create a combustion engine that runs on gas... ...and creates incredible power density... For the amount of fuel that it takes. But you'll never figure out how to put wheels on the thing. His, uh, his last section reminds me of the Bitcoin and software reliability stuff. Uh, uh, that article that we did by uh, uh, Beauty on. Such a great piece. Just talking about the mission critical nature of uh, Bitcoin. And why the, the typical mantra does not apply here. Uh, And and he, he goes into this as well, and this is another great line. The approach to scaling Bitcoin is a slow and conservative process. Bitcoin is too important to follow the Silicon Valley mantra of move fast and break things. Instead, it's move slowly and don't break anything. It's really hard to stress that enough um because the the mentality of most developers that get into this system don't realize what they're dealing with that because this is an artificial environment screwing with the the parts of the system that create this environment which we've which was seemed deemed impossible literally an impossibility in computer science just 10 years ago Screwing with those, with that part of it, makes no sense whatsoever. And it is the opposite of making progress because you need you need to protect the foundation at all cost. Only then can you actually build things on top of it. Ethereum is running into this problem right now. They want to do Ethereum 2.0 and it breaks like half of the applications built on top of it. So people are just moving away. They're migrating away from the system. Either that or they're trying to prevent the Ethereum from being quote-unquote fixed because the thing is so bloated and, of course, can't scale, as everybody has been trying to tell them for ages. And the foundation is, in fact, weak. It is highly trusted. Infura is basically deciding what an Ethereum is and what it isn't. If we made foundational changes to TCPIP or HTML or HTTP or something every six months, every year... The whole of the internet would stop working until everybody upgraded. How ridiculous is that? You have to ossify these core protocols or you can't build anything on top of it. because making even a minor change could break so much stuff on top of it. that it, it just it's just a terrible, terrible idea. It is a slow and conservative process to update Bitcoin. A highly recommended Bitcoin and Software Reliability by Beautyon. Um, I don't remember what the episode is, but I'll put it in the show notes. All right, we'll do. We'll we'll finish this out here. We're we're good. Um. Uh, really love the rant on this one. I've always just I've been loving this gradually then suddenly series. Parker Lewis does such a good job of breaking these things down, and always manages to put it in a way that I haven't quite thought of yet. So. I feel like I'm getting something out of every single one of these pieces on an ongoing basis, um, all on topics that I could have swore I've read and knew everything about, um, and always encouraging me to go back and listen to stuff like uh, uh, The Use of Knowledge in Society, which I love. Um, so uh, I will definitely link to all of that stuff. Uh, I'll link to, let's see, The Use of Knowledge in Society, uh, Bitcoin and Software Reliability. Uh, I'll link to the previous uh, four... Episodes of the Gradually Then Suddenly uh, series here. Uh, and there was something else I wanted to hit. Oh yeah, the, uh, my, my own article. The uh, misconceptions about um, uh, Bitcoin scalability. So I'll, I'll link to that one as well. Uh, so plenty other, of other things to dig deeper into if you want to uh, go down the rabbit hole of this topic. But this was Bitcoin is not too slow. So, thank you guys so much for listening. Don't forget to check out unchained capital.com. Uh, their blog is awesome. I, I read everything that they publish now. And uh, definitely, definitely follow Unchained Capital and Parker Lewis um, for tons of great content and input on so much of this stuff. Thank you guys so much for listening. This is the Crypto Economy, and I am Guy Swan guy who has read more about bitcoin than anybody else you know don't forget to join me at Bitblock boom this year uh definitely definitely get your tickets um as early as possible and don't forget to use uh, uh discount code or offer code cc that will save you 30 percent on those tickets and uh hit me up on either the crypto economy crew telegram or twitter uh dm me or whatever uh, so that we can all hang out. So anybody wants to come meet me and hang out at Bitblock Boom, I'm gonna get drunk. I'm gonna talk about Bitcoin. Uh, I'm gonna have a, a really fun speech, and it's gonna be a grand, grand time. I absolutely had a blast at 2019, and am crazy excited uh, to do it all again this year. So thank you guys so much. Don't forget about the discount code, and uh, yeah, subscribe to the show so you don't miss all of the amazing. Uh, Bitcoin content made available in audio. And of course, share it out with everybody you know in the Bitcoin space. And lastly, if you want to hang out with the Crypto Economy crew in the Telegram chat, do not forget you can always support this show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash economy. Uh, As little as $1 uh, a month gets you into that crew uh, and lets you hang out with us and it really does go a long way and it means all the world to know that uh, you guys are appreciating listening and sharing out this stuff so thank you guys so much for doing that and yeah thank you to all my patrons i think like yesterday was like patron day or something i got some sort of an email at it so thank you guys so much for being a patron in fact john vallis john vallis just came a, became a patron i wanted to shoot out uh, shout out for him and his show on, uh, he had me on the show uh, some time back a, you know, a, month, a couple months ago so much fun, absolutely loving uh, John Vallis's stuff so definitely check that out I will link to his show so that you can uh, check that out that's Bitcoin Rapid Fire really, really good stuff over there alright, um, that'll do it alright, thanks so much for listening guys and I'll catch you tomorrow with another episode of The Crypto Economy take it easy guys